I think it's important to emphasize, first of all, that we don't see journals as an alternative to other outputs of science. So we see this journals as part of open science because we see open access as just as a stepping stone towards an open science future, which is the really powerful development, actually. We don't usually do breaking news on this podcast, but this week is an exception. Embo and Embo Press are announcing that all five of their journals will move to full open access by the beginning of 2024. The press publishes the Embo Journal, Embo Reports, Embo Molecular Medicine, Molecular Systems Biology, and co-publishes Life Science Alliance. To promote open science beyond open access, all papers published in Embo Press journals will also have to include the source data underlying their figures. Welcome to the Embo Podcast. In this episode, we discuss the new open access policy with the head of Embo Press, Vern Pulver. We also talk about the role of journals in a preprint in open science world. Thomas Lemberger, who runs several innovative projects at Embo Press, spoke about the past and future of open access and open science. And University of Sao Paulo biochemist Alicia Kowaltowski talked about some of the unintended consequences of open access in exacerbating existing inequality. To get started, we asked Bern, what exactly is happening? What's the big news? Okay, so so what we're going to do is we uh, are going to shift all of our journals, and that's um, we have five journals at Embo Press, uh, and we are going to shift them all to co- full open access. So that means that all the papers that you will uh, read in these journals will be accessible on an open access license, a CC BY license, to anyone in the world, really, be it public or, or in the interested scientific community. And that's a shift because while we've always been active in open access for many years, since 2005, in fact, um, it is now uh, a big shift for us internally because our two largest journals have been what's called hybrid open access for uh, many years, in fact, since 2007. And uh, that means that all of these open access papers have to sustain our the costs of producing these journals. Previously at EMBO, we uh, basically had a cross-subsidy that our three open access journals were essentially supported partially by our hybrid journals, which were still supported largely through uh, subscription fees. The reason we're doing it now is, is uh, really um, several folds. So we have always said that we will see how the community really um, chooses to publish. And we are finding that more and more people are choosing to publish open access journal in our um, elective open access journals, Embo Journal, Embo Reports. So we are above 60% of authors who are choosing to publish open access anyway. And, and we've always said when it reaches these levels, we will naturally essentially flip to open, open access anyway. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that we, are, we want to be aligned with, with where funders, many, many of the world's um, top funders are going with this, which is really to have mandates towards open access or more interestingly, open science, which is a topic we, we should come to too, which is something we're strongly supporting, of course. And basically, uh, we have um, managed to also uh, streamline our costs to such a, in such a way in, in the last few years to, um, to ensure that we can remain equitable to the scientific community. And that's something that we really care about. And that's always a really big challenge in open access. So how do you balance 
the quality of a journal with being equitable to and equitable means to be essentially accessible to any author in the world who is doing great science. The cost of producing a scientific paper is a topic of heated discussion these days and poses a problem for equity in open access publishing. Embo and Embo Press make public detailed breakdowns of the costs of publishing in their journals. If you want to see what the article processing charges and soon to be extinct subscription fees pay for, look for the financial transparency features on our site. Thomas Lemberger is the deputy head of Embo Press, where he runs several innovative projects, including source data and the refereed preprint platform Review Commons. In 2005, Thomas was a postdoc making the transition to scientific editor at Embo's first fully open access journal, Molecular Systems Biology. Thomas also worked at Embo Journal at the time. MSB, Molecular Systems Biology, the abbreviation is MSB, was started with this idea that it could be a, a sort of a, a new journal in this new field with better access to the data underlying the papers, uh, to the computational codes that were used to, to analyze the data. Uh, it was really the emergence uh, of, of computational biology in all its, all its glory trying to model in computers living organisms and, and understand the, the processes with computational models. And, and that was all quite new and, and quite challenging. And so there was this idea that we would like to have a journal that would provide better access to all this information. And that was a, the fundamental justification, I think, really, to, to start an open access journal. Uh, and MSB was launched as the first open access journal at, at Embo. So for, for people who, who may not have, um, who may not, been, uh, not have been around at the time, it's, it's interesting to note that at this time, there are no preprint servers in biology, or there's no bioarchive, but there is archive in physics and, and for physics and for math and for computational biology. Do you think um, Embo was, was able to start MSB also because this is an interdisciplinary community that had some, uh, some already familiarity with, with open access and open sharing of, of data and tools, more than probably biology at the time? Yes, that, that is true. Um, I, I don't know the role of archive, but for sure, the, there was a very strong influence from the computational biology uh, community that was already used to, to share code. And, and the concept of open source code was, of course, not at all novel. And we had a couple of editorials from George Church, etc., where it was very clear that when producing so much biological data with the new omics platforms, but also small-scale data that were highly quantitative and used directly in computation models, it was obvious that the way to go was to share this data across the entire community. And, and again, that was the strong and deep justification for open access for, for MSB. Uh, it was a community that was living from that. There were many computational biologists, and this is still the, the case, that were not producing data themselves, but analyzing the data from others. And we wanted to show that is a bona fide scientific activity to derive novel insights by analyzing data and, and making sense of it. After Molecular Systems Biology, which started as an open access journal at, at Embo Press in 2005, and 
when it was still a, a very uh, boutique and niche thing to do. Um, the, the the next journal to go, if I'm if I'm um, if I'm correct in this, fully open access at, at MO Press was Embo Molecular Medicine, and you've you've phrased this in terms of equity, not just for the scientific community, but for uh, patients, uh, patient groups, uh, anyone who might be interested in in research that is of immediate clinical interest. Um, and this is this is to me a, a very important point because when I am when I'm trying to track down, for example, the basis of many open clinical trials, um, I find that the, um, the the closer you get to the clinical end, uh, the more closed journals tend to be. Not just uh, the the big uh, the, the big brand, uh, New England, Lancet, and so forth. Yeah, but right. the specialist journals in heart surgery or or cancer immunotherapy, they are also um, extremely opaque in, in in this respect, right? And ultimately, uh, we're, we're speaking of the researcher paying for it or the library paying for it, but the taxpayers actually paying for it or philanthropy, right? Yeah, no, no, I think that's an important point. And in fact, just historically, you're, you're right that American Medicine was the, um, the second journal that went fully open access. So our hybrid approach um, was 2007, which is two years after um, MSB went full open access. It was launched full open access. But then 2009, we uh, sorry, in 2012, we moved um, embolomolecular medicine to full open access, specifically, as you said, because it was a more um, medical journal where we really saw the need to to be fully accessible rapidly, because of course it's it's important for for taxpayers to essentially have access to all the exciting science that's published in principle. I would also say pragmatically that the medical need is much more urgent than, than other interesting uh, pieces of science that we publish, which, which have always been accessible after the, the six-month self-deposition um, policy that we've had for many, many years. So um, just to explain what that is, after six months, you were always allowed or encouraged even to, to self-archive your work in the free, uh, basically inaccepted format. Um, and we would, after one year, we've always posted um, automatically on PubMed Central, the final version of the papers, and they were freely accessible in our journals too. So that is means freely, not on an open access license, but freely accessible. So, but that one one year lag is really too much for, for, for medical papers. I agree with that. People were familiar in their university or in their research institute with the annual fight where the librarian basically would go struggle with with the publishers uh, to find a, 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 a solution, not necessarily a fair one, but one that they could afford to have. And this would involve things like bundling journals and these massive uh, packages that you would get, especially from the larger commercial publishers. And now um, we, we've entered a, a different set of agreements, which I'm not sure everybody uh, is, are, is familiar with, which are these read and, and publish agreements. Can, yeah. can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so so just so that's a really important um, note that you make here. So so one of the premises of going open access was always that the authors have more control and choose um, which journals provide the value that they see fit for their research. Essentially, so the idea was to to really empower the scientific community to be much more proactive in choosing journals and uh, uh, by the value that 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 they add to the system. So so in principle this. This is great. So it, it, uh, the idea was to remove it from, the, from this very sort of um, intense negotiations that you mentioned from the, between librarians and, 
And the publishing industry in for discounts and bundles and so on, um, everybody knows the so-called great deal or the big deal from Elsevier and so on in this respect. So, so that's which is was always a problem for small independent non-for-profit publishers because they were easily outcompeted also by the very large con conglomerate publishers, for-profit publishers, um, such as you know Elsevier's, um, Springer Nature, and Wiley, and so on. So, so that's uh, something that has come full circle, though. So, so you just mentioned the publish and read agreements. What what has emerged is that. Um, the author pays model is uh, which still exists in many parts of the world um, is turning out to be very hard to administer and and quite clunky so we currently have a situation where still a lot of the money is sequestered in libraries and authors are often not really awarded separate funds to publish papers themselves um, essentially so often they have to dip into their research budgets um, to publish papers these, to publish these APC fees that I mentioned and that's a that's a really big problem because it takes money away from the research and that's really not the intention so so what has emerged in Europe um, initially and now increasingly in other places um, particularly also North America and some Asian countries is these publish and read agreements which are essentially, a way to um, to bundle again papers and and pay centrally for for open access publishing. Now the reason I said it's full circle is because we are now again in these in these intense negotiation rounds. And maybe emblematic here is is the project Deal in Germany, which was one of the first ones of these at the national level, where where many hundreds of universities came together across Germany and and negotiated together with the larger publishers. And initially this was uh, with, with Wiley who placed the first deal with, with Project Deal in Germany and then uh, with Springer Nature. Of course, Elsevier is also negotiating, but you can immediately see what's happening here that the large publishers have the seat at the table. They um, negotiate the first deals and smaller university publishers such as Rockefeller University um, are, are not included at this point, although this has been noticed and, and there is strong efforts now by, by conglomerates such as Project Deal to make standardized contracts or agreements that can be really mapped out um, much more in a much more efficient and equitable way across also small, small not-for-profit publishers. So I think this is crucially important because otherwise we're going to um, amplify this soft drift into, into very large publishing houses, which, which is not good for anyone, really, because you're reducing diversity. The increasing dominance of the open access option at Embo Press hybrid journals is remarkable. The proportion of Embo journal authors opting for open access went from 16% in 2014 to 59% in 2022. For Embo reports over the same period, the open access fraction quintupled from 10 to 51%. Of course, this growth reflects not only authors' individual choices, but also structural changes like open access mandates from funding agencies. The open access boom was not, however, evenly distributed, with European corresponding authors accounting for three-quarters of open access publications at Embo Press hybrid journals. When you go away, you shift the cost from readers and, and institutional libraries to authors and, and their research budgets. Um, so you mentioned a, a gradual shift in the hybrid journals in the proportion of, of authors submitting uh, to open access versus the, the traditional model. Um, is there anything that you can tell us about the, um, the demographics or the types of authors or the geography of authors uh, in, in this shift? Yeah, so 
<laughs> so that's a very good question and and it sort of reflects in fact what you might expect so so first of all let me pick <clears throat> up on this shift of finances from the institutions that represent the readers to the authors um, that's actually that sounds deceptively simple but it's actually a massive massive issue um, so basically for for two reasons one is that Many institutions are either more reader intensive or more author intensive, if you want. So research institutions, um, which can be universities or just research institutes such as the Crick or something in London, um, obviously have have um, a huge output of excellent research. So for them, the costs will will be will be dramatically changing because they move from a single subscription to many many papers they're publishing. Whereas other Universities that are more teaching universities will, of course, benefit because their subscription will be compensated for by relatively few papers charges, essentially. So, so, so there's a global, very big demographic shift there. And the other thing is that there's, there's inherently just mathematically many, many fewer authors than there are subscribers or readers, essentially. So, so you're really amplifying any um, inequities in the system dramatically because because there's so so many fewer um, authors really that that have to bear the costs of of a publishing a given research paper so so that's why we have to be very very careful that we don't um, cross barriers here but to your question about the demographics now of of the people who are choosing to publish open access it's as you might predict it's largely European authors in fact we we have almost all of our European authors now are choosing the open access route in EMBO journal and EMBO reports. Um, in the US, it's increased quite dramatically over the last years too, actually. And Asia has also, um, various Asian countries have also started to opt in more, but that came a bit later and it's, it seems to be increasing. So, so, but, but it really is, is very neatly divided between the, if you want the North and the global South. And that's something that we are also aware of, that we, we really, again, as I said before, we don't want to leave anyone behind here. Alicia Kowatowski is a professor of biochemistry at the University of São Paulo, Brazil. Alicia and her colleagues José Arruda, Paulo Nussensweig and Ariel Silver recently wrote a piece posted on the Scholarly Kitchen site analyzing the sometimes counterintuitive effects of open access on researchers in the Global South. I think the scientific community in general uh, has come to a consensus that we want to openly read manuscripts, and that's really important to fully use all this knowledge that we're acquiring through science. So open access is not something I question at all. Uh, the problem is that as we're transitioning to open access publications in journals, and these open access publications in journals are mostly upon payments of article processing charges of APCs, we can create a different kind of paywall in publications, which isn't the paywall to read a publication, but instead is a paywall to publish. So I think scientists who don't have as much funding as some other scientists can find it very difficult to equitably publish their findings in journals and be read side by side with authors who have more funding, given that article processing charges are often very, very high. And particularly scientists in developing countries, such as myself, uh, I work in Brazil, we have always managed to publish equitably and, and, and have findings that authors in the global north also read, 
But today I find that the, the charges that uh, we have to pay to publish in open access journals are so high that they're often two, three times what I earn per month as a full professor. And they're more than what a student earns in a year. And it's been very difficult to publish in these journals. So we're very worried as journals are all transitioning to an open access publication scheme in which you pay to publish open access, if people are going to start thinking about us and not exclude us as publishing people also, and have a good policy for waivers and for discounts for the global south so that you're not excluding us from publishing. And I'm going to put it out there. I think that being excluded from publishing is much worse than being excluded from reading because not having open access wasn't good. Uh, having a subscription paywall was never good, but you could always ask the authors for a copy. That was never illegal, and that's a good way to get this copy. Now, being excluded from publishing, people simply won't know that our work exists, and that's worse. When you looked at what actually happens to different countries, one very interesting finding is that actually in the lowest income countries, the fraction of open access um, publications is is quite high, uh, whereas um, there is a problem for countries like Brazil or Argentina, for example. Why is that? So uh, what we did actually was go into Scopus. And of course, this is already a problem because not all journals and not all publications are in Scopus. But this is where we could find this quite easily. Uh, and we searched for how many publications came from each country, from countries that were upper middle income, that were lower middle income, low income and high income. Uh, and what we find is that a very, very small percentage of publications, actually, I think it's 0.35% of publications, have at least one author from a low-income economy country. Uh, the reason for that is first that these aren't all that many countries. These are mostly countries in Central Africa, Afghanistan, countries at war, for example. Um, there are zero countries in Latin America that are classified as low-income by the World Bank, for example. And I don't think most people know that. Um, so these countries really are, are few countries. And also economically, they don't invest in science at all because of all their economic problems. So we really have very few authors from these countries. Uh, on the other hand, most journals do have waiver policies for authors from low-income countries. So I think that these very few times, these 0.35% of times in which these authors do manage somehow to publish science, they are covered by waiver policy. So they don't have to pay for article publishing charges. And we find that percentage wise, authors from low income countries actually publish more in open access journals than authors even from high income countries. I think the problem is in the middle income countries. So there are two middle income country classifications by the World Bank. There's the lower middle income and the upper middle income. Lower middle income countries include a few Latin American countries. Haiti, El Salvador, Bolivia are low income uh, economies, according to the World Bank. And these and most large editorial um, organizations qualify at least for partial discounts. So they don't have to pay the full APCs, they pay partial APCs. That I find a problem already because these economies are so weak that even with a 50% discount, the APCs are going to be quite high for them. Uh, on the other hand, most Latin American countries, including Brazil, are classified as upper middle income economies by the World Bank. 
And as upper middle income economies, most journals do not grant us neither waivers nor discounts. And when we look at the percentage of publications that are open access in upper middle income economies that don't get waivers or discounts in any journal, they're very low. They're actually the lowest of all. So low income economies publish quite a bit percentage wise uh, in open access journals. Lower middle income economies, which are about 4% of the authors, so they also publish very little in total. They publish less in open access journals, but they do get discounts, even though that might not be enough. Then upper middle income economies that don't get these discounts publish very little in open access. This to me seems to indicate that we're already choosing to publish less in these journals right now because of the economic barrier of paying for these APCs. And that worries me because journals are transitioning very quickly to open access only, and we do want to read the full manuscripts online. Um, the, the question is, this, this transformation is happening so quickly and without a control for pricing, and also without regards to the economic barriers for our struggling economies, is this going to exclude us? And that's what we're worried about. Do you think um, preprints have helped at all? Because you mentioned the, the inability to get your, your research results out in front of the international scientific community. So do you think uh, things like BioArchive or Archive have, have helped a bit uh, level the playing field? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm a total supporter of preprints. And actually, we don't need to have open access in journals right now. If everybody preprinted, and if everybody updated their preprints before resubmitting their manuscript to a journal responding to reviewers, we would have every single paper completely open access in its final form as preprints and easily searchable. You know, all you would have to do is get the journal paper and look up the preprint and you would find the full text of the paper and that would happen for free. And that would also break with the economic problem we have with journal publishers. So EMBO is linked to a scientific society. It's, it's different than most journal publishers, which are private companies and are for-profit companies. And these companies also have a characteristic, which is that they don't respond to typical market values. You know, you don't go around looking for the best journal for your paper in terms of pricing. That's not how it works. Uh, it's a very different economy. And that's why uh, these publishers typically have very, very high profit margins. And that's one of the main complaints we have about subscription journals, that we're paying a lot for these subscriptions. These companies have very high profit margins and they don't respond to these economic pressures. The open access system in which you pay to publish the gold open access system doesn't break with the system. You know, you're still paying these companies and there still is no control over pricing. You're just paying before and not after with the subscription. So I don't think that resolves the problem with these companies. On the other hand, preprinting does resolve this problem because you're preprinting for free and you can find these papers there. I think we also have to do a whole bunch of other changes in the publishing landscape. We need more journals that are controlled by scientists that come to benefit scientists, less, you know, for-profit journals that don't have any scientists in the mix. We need to responsibly assess research in which the research is more important than where it was published, than the brand names and all that. There are all sorts of changes that have to happen, but these changes take time.
we're going in the right direction, but things are taking taking of course a long time to really to really shift. I think we have to really design um, research assessment much more professionally and systematically to scale basically with the huge complexity of science that we're now assessing. Well, and the different kinds of roles that people play that are important, right? So I, I, it could be argued that, for example, the most important thing, in a sense, uh, published in the last three years was the posting of the SARS-CoV-2 sequence to, um, to, to a virology database, which was not a, a paper at the time, but certainly had a massive, uh, to use the, the word you did not want to use, impact on everything that happened, uh, both in terms of research and in terms of public health and clinical development. And recently, um, we had on the EMBO podcast, Corey Bargman, and, and she was um, she made the very clear point that uh, if the scientific community is, if the life sciences community specifically isn't valuing these kind of contributions, it's a choice. And she mentioned the example of, of CERN and the Large Hadron Collider and so forth, where the team leader's uh, job, part of their job um, on these thousand author papers is to then write uh, an assessment of the contribution of, of the engineers, of the physicists who were doing instrumentation development or whoever was tracking the, the little particle flying off uh, to the left there yeah. um, to make sure that they received pro proper credit, not just in, in terms yeah. of, a, of a cookie or a pat in the head, but something that will actually impact their career progression, right? And then right now, in, in academia and the life sciences, that's not something we're very good at doing at the moment. Everything yeah. doesn't have to be a paper, as, as you've said before. Yeah, right right now for assessment, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, it, it usually mm -hmm. is. Yeah, so so that, that's a really, really important point. And, and again, it comes to this issue of looking holistically. Um, first point is to look holistically at open science outputs much more, much more broadly than just the journal papers in highly selective a few highly selective journals that's important on the large hadron collider just a sort of snarky note on the site of course you know it's also known that every author on these large hadron collider papers did get a pi position ultimately so so in essence these experiments are so power so important and visible that that they still give you credit the problem is much more on typical biology research papers where you have maybe 15 authors what really counts at the moment in biology is the first authors and and the corresponding authors. Um, for research assessment, that's where it stops. And that's why we're seeing this very strong inflation in co-first authorships, which go up to five, even more now, and, and even corresponding authorships, co-corresponding authorships, which go well beyond three these days. So, so, so this is something we have to grapple with, and we have. So basically, we have an ontology was developed that's um, becoming a, a widely adopted standard across journals called credit which goes a little bit um, towards really being more granular about the individual contributions of authors in a sort of machine readable way so you can actually extract exactly what every author position did on the paper still that's not really enough so so what we're excited about is to go e even more granular so as we uh, as you know we uh, we post all the source data now underlying each figure in the paper. We even uh, mandate this now for a year. And that has allowed us actually to give also an authorship to every figure panel in the paper. So, so um, we basically have a data version of every paper now that we post separately on a database run by the EBI. And, and that allows us to also add an authorship 
to every one of these figure panels. And we hope this will really be, and ultimately this should be machine readable and so on, in a way that that also can be used by research assessment exercises to really see what the that fifth author on the paper really, really did. So that is great for credit. It also adds accountability. So when things go wrong, let's say there is there's an research integrity is you're on a very specific part of a paper, which is typically what happens. It's not a, each figure in a paper that's problematic. It's a, one very specific um, piece of data in the paper. We know then precisely um, which lab of a multi-lab collaboration actually was responsible for that piece of data. That's that's really interesting, and it, and it opens a possibility there in terms of, uh, now, now the words in my brain, impact which is to see um, not just which papers are cited, which has always been problematic, even if we move down from the level of just the journal um, citation factor, the individual paper uh, factor, for example, one thing that commercial publishers have known for a while is that a, a high-profile retraction actually boosts um, the, uh, the citation rate in the short period uh, quite a bit, as, and it's, it's not positive in, in terms of scientific output. But we could, in this, in this scenario, actually see which data items are, are useful to the science community downstream and, and who made them, which is, exactly. which is a really yeah. exciting possibility. So, so that's, that's exciting. I would even go further and sort of articulate that we should um, move what we're currently doing in terms of preprinting, which is essentially ready-to-go research papers just accelerated by posting them on an open preprint platform before they go through all the peer review and revision process at journals to go further and and really um, have a have a new uh, structure of data preprints which are which are really standalone figures that are generated that are not decorated with a huge sort of narrative interpretation that ties complex data sets together which is still a very important output to understand complex science in the form of research papers but there's so much data that doesn't really need that narrative structure and we should really start early and um, further upstream with preprints to to really share these data preprints which um, would have all the metadata associated with them authorship associated with them and maybe even some quality control steps already and then assemble these for just for a subset of the the data that we share into this more classical full preprint and full research paper that is still important but I think we should move away from publishing every piece of science that we can think of in this form of a narrative research paper, which is really not scalable. We can't peer review all of these. We're publishing more than 3 million of these papers per year these days in the biosciences. Um, and one can immediately see that the scalability in terms of peer review, which is you know, three referees on every paper, that, that, that um, is a bottleneck that emerges immediately because, because as this grows exponentially, the re the referee base has to grow three times faster, essentially, and and that's not happening. So journals are struggling more and more to find excellent referees who also have the time it takes, which is many hours, to um, to, to do a proper job. So I would rather share things in, in a more granular way, upstream, in a preprint format, and then reserve this, this very important step of peer review to a subset of papers. But research assessment has to adopt to valorize these outputs. Otherwise, everybody will always rush to publish in very few journals that matter for research assessment in this classical research paper format. I asked Thomas Lemberger for examples of how Emble Press is promoting open science beyond open access to the classical research paper and how this may affect research assessment, broadening the scope of work that can and should be formally credited for its contribution to science.
We have very sort of advanced policies in terms of data sharing. We ask now pretty much systematically authors to provide the data behind the papers. And we have an entire curation platform and automatic deposition platform to take care of this data. So we, we have a curation platform that curates the content and the experimental design of, of every figure and associate that to the data. And this combination of data and metadata is then deposited automatically in a database uh, at the EBI, Ember EBI, which is called BioStudies. And essentially for every paper, there is its pair record in, in BioStudies that serves as a hub for uh, all the data behind the paper, whether this data is hosted on external resources like Geo, AliExpress, or, 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 or Pride, or whether they are small scale and, and attached as so-called supplementary data as Excel files and so on, or Western blots um, behind the images. All this data is gathered in a single single record that is really linked one-to-one -one with, with the published paper. So that's, that's one thing we do that is, um, that is sort of emphasizing the integration of the practice of open science in the publishing process. Now, we, we have other policies that combine that with checks of, of the integrity of the data to be sure that these data are of high quality and, and trustable. And finally, we have also uh, initiated a couple of, of years ago um, or promoted the, the use of data citations. It's important, of course, to request that the data are made public, but we have also to be careful to provide credit to data producers. And data citation is one of those tools that can provide credit to data producers. In particular, when these data producers may not even appear as authors in classical papers, and I'm thinking of um, uh, core facilities that are nowadays are producing most of the large-scale systematical data, uh, these people are working very hard with very high standards, and uh, the, the data citation can provide a mechanism to, to give them credit, academic credit, for the, the work they do as data producers. Why does science still need uh, high-quality traditional journals? Why not just the preprint? Uh, why not just sharing data on, on servers, Absolutely. depositing sequences, depositing uh, expression maps, or, or whatever the... Uh, the current trend may be, and, and that's that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's a very reasonable um, and very important question. So, so we we've always um, said, and, and that's particularly important for journals such as such as the Embo Press journals, which are all very very selective. So, so the reason why we are quite expensive is is very largely due to the fact that we only publish, uh, you know, between ten and fifteen percent of the papers that are submitted to us. So, so why? Are journals needed and why do we still need that that very very strong selectivity so i think it's important to um to emphasize first of all that we don't see journals as an alternative to other outputs of science so we see this journals as part of open science and that's a very very important concept that we maybe can delve into in just a second um, because we see open access as just as a, as a stepping stone towards an open science uh, future, which is, which is the really powerful development, actually. Um, so, so the reason we think journals are still important are largely because we still provide a high quality, quality control service. And that's based on, um, in our case, both the um, hands-on editorial selection, but in particular, of course, 
the high quality peer review that we apply. But it also includes um, data curation services that we apply, uh, research integrity screening services that we apply systematically to all of our papers. So we really um, add value to the science that's been shared. Now, just a quick point on the selectivity. We, we don't just select papers on the, the basic quality of the research that's been done. That should be a no-brainer for any journal or any service that selects, essentially. It doesn't have to be a journal, but any service that evolves that selects has to select for quality, of course. But we select also, importantly, for um, the interest of the work, for the breadth of the work, um, sometimes the word impact is used. I don't want to use that because it's been abused in um, in various ways. Um, but but it does describe what what we're selecting for, which is which is really to select the most important work that people really should read. And and the reason that remains an important selection criteria, I believe, is that that we're swimming in an ocean of information. And while we're also developing very rapidly search technology, um, especially with artificial intelligence now, completely new ways to access complex information, ultimately science is still a human enterprise at this point, and, and humans have to absorb complex information. And it's really crucial that they um, absorb complex information, not just in their own area of expertise, which is becoming increasingly narrow and specialized because science is growing so much. It's natural that everyone's becoming more specialized because we know so much more about every specific topic. The most exciting science happens at the interfaces of, of specific domains. And, and I think, so I sometimes call this the coffee room effect, that yet you basically come across science that you didn't know existed, you didn't expect. And, and that's the hallmark of great institutes that you meet scientists that work on other things. You, you chat in the coffee room and you, you design new projects just on the fly based on these discussions. And that's exactly the role of broad-based journals such as the Embo Journal, that we get scientists to read on topics that they wouldn't have expected to find. And, and that's still a service that is crucially important in my view to the human reader. And we hope um, it's, it's useful, but we're always listening to the scientific community if it, if it is still useful. And we will adapt accordingly, of course. Now, now, just I don't want to go on too long about this, but of course, this this process has been abused in in becoming a sort of proxy for research assessment. And when you hire scientists or when you award grants, the the publication in one of these broad-based, highly selective journals is seen as a hallmark of great science, which is then used as a proxy to award your funding, to award your tenure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's not that's not a service that that journals really want to provide. Of of course, it makes us important and and powerful, but that's something, and that's why we launched the San Francisco Declaration of Research Assessment with our colleagues um, exactly ten years ago, next month actually, to point this out. It's of course a very good correlation that that the science we publish is is among the most should be among the most fundable science there is but but it's not an absolute correlation and and we have to be very careful that that we're not abusing the selectivity for for things it wasn't designed to provide embo press clearly fits the bill of a publishing organization working with the research community to develop new tools experiment with new kinds of publications and promote policies that can impact research assessment to reward researchers contributing to open science but what about Alicia's more pressing question, the immediate problem? What solutions will EmboPress offer to authors who cannot afford open access publication fees? 
Yeah, so that's a really important question, Thiago. And and I think the um, the important uh, starting point is that we've we and many of our of, of the other quality journals have a long have long standing agreements with Research for Life um, and other similar um, basic projects that essentially give free access to authors from from the poorest nations on on the in the world. Um, that's something that's been in place for many years and it's very, very important. However, the reality is that we actually receive very few papers from these countries. What's particularly important is countries where, where we do get excellent research papers submitted. And I include just a few examples. Um, Argentina, Chile and Brazil would be countries like that. But um, it also includes India, for example, which um, has a very high level uh, research community. We just returned from a trip from there, and and other countries um, that you that that you can, including Eastern Europe, for example, where where the, where the funding is is dramatically lower than in Western certain Western European countries. So, what I think we need beyond that is 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 a waiver scheme that um, case by case um, authors can can be. Um, Absolved from paying anything essentially or paying a reduced fee, because it's not just the country of origin. It's also if you are an early career researcher who maybe is a senior author on a paper, a corresponding author. If you're between grants, for example, you sometimes just lose the ability to pay even as a senior person. So I think we we need the possibility to um, to be context dependent here. That's really important. It's also true to say another dimension is the, the the subject matter. So certain areas in science are funded much, much better than other areas. But the fees, we currently have a one-size-fits-all fee. The fees are the same. So, so this is obviously much more dramatic in the social sciences and so on, where the funding is much, much lower. But, but it's also true in biology, where, where certain areas receive much less funding. So that's another dimension. Um, so I think we have to move beyond uh, waivers here also to having a more stratified mechanism of payments. So essentially, one can immediately think of things such as incorporating the GDP of a country or the total the funding the total funding of a country in in a sort of algorithmic way of of, of layering the charges according to to those aspects. And that's something that's not really happening right now in uh, in publishing. Um, there's certain attempts to start that. So, for example, published library, public library of science plus has started to have a more layered process in their payments. Um, that's something I think is particularly important, and we will certainly work on this very hard um, by the time we go op open access. But for now, we have we certainly always will have a buffer mechanism that anyone who cannot pay can apply for waiver, and we will be very happy to to issue that if there are strong arguments for that. It's vital to correct inequities created by open access publication fees. Economic inequality is a challenge for open access as it was, as it is, for traditional scientific publication. And it's not the only problem that migrated to away from subscription journals. Open access mandates, especially without controls for pricing and quality, can produce perverse incentives and the so-called predatory journals have also moved aggressively into open access. Um, an interesting discussion we had a while back with Adriano Aguzzi um, was uh, of a model where um, the funders would open competition, competitive calls for publishers, where hopefully you would demonstrate not only that you have an impact, but that you perform the kind of services that you mentioned, that you curate data well, that you're making new tools to make uh, data searchable and available. Um, 
that uh, that you do integrity checks, and and that ultimately, hopefully, um, we can we can assess journals not just based on the, on the immediate two year impact, but also on the lasting contributions that the, the bulk of papers make to science. How solid. Um, they are yeah, over time. No, I, yeah, so that's a very, very crucial um, concept that you just articulated. Um, it's something we've proposed actually to Plan S funders and and um, European national funders to, for some time. We, we would love to move to that to, to that situation because a lot of the costs at EMBO, and we've had a transparent finance policy for some time, so people can to some extent at least see that also in the, the finances. Um, that we publish, a lot of our costs really come through this quality control process that you just mentioned, um, such as data curation, which is which is not something we charge extra for. So the problem with open access is that it's it's very quick to discourage these sort of very valuable additional steps that journals provide. And it can very easily turn into a race to the bottom, where the more you publish, the more money you make. And this has been really the the, the ugly face of this has been the predatory journal growth that you've just mentioned too. So I completely share your view that we should rather move to a situation where we have many fewer journals. There's currently over 35,000 journals. We have to ask ourselves if that's really a, a reasonable number to have when we have things like preprints, which are a very effective, rapid way to share scientific information in a, with minimal quality control checks, essentially, which is, which is very effective. So, so why do we need to decorate papers with sort of very quick peer review, you know, um, when, when it really adds limited value at, that, at a certain level of journal? Um, and that would liberate huge amounts of funds, by the way, which we can then reinvest in quality control steps at a smaller number of journals. So, so that's one way to finance it. The other way is exactly as you said, top, if you want top down, that you have competitive research grants journals can apply to to um to add these steps um so i'm really looking forward to sort of what i call a hybrid diamond open access future where part of the the costs are covered by authors or published and read agreements and part of it is covered more centrally through ideally a competitive way as you just articulate for these extra quality control steps that really and and open science mechanisms that are so crucial in the next years of sharing science To learn the details of EMBO Press's move to full open access publication at all journals, please visit the Press's webpage. To explore some of our innovative tools for open science, visit Source Data, Review Commons, or the Early Evidence Base pages. Alicia Kowatowski's analysis of the differential economic and geographic impact of open access can be found at the Scholarly Kitchen. Thank you for listening to the EMBO Podcast.